Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, the same passage that we read for Easter, but now we're going to focus on the husband. You know that Paul, through this whole section, is walking his way through each element, each part of a Christian home and a Christian workplace, and today he addresses husbands. If you're here this morning and you're a husband, would you please raise your hands nice and high? We see kind of the husbands who are being directly addressed. Thank you. Apparently, husbands, we need help. Because when Paul addresses the wife, he gives three verses to those instructions. And next week when he talks to the kids, he's going to give them three verses. And then to fathers, he's going to give them a verse. But here to husbands, we have a full nine verses. That's more space than the entire rest of the family combined. Husbands need help. And to our husbands and to our aspiring husbands, those who want to be a husband someday, there is no corner of the culture we can go to to find the substance of our calling as we find it here in this passage today. I've watched a lot of sitcoms and a lot of Disney movies, and I've yet to leave a single one of those and say, man, that's the kind of husband I want to be. Whatever I saw there, I want to emulate that, and I want to be that. Our culture's infatuation with its own experiment to liquefy gender roles and liberate itself on its own terms means we have utterly lost the ability to say anything meaningful at all about a husband's role in the home. And where that happens... And where we raise what we have to the ground and leave this vacuum, things will fill it and they're not pretty. The two husbands I see today are the authoritarian husbands and the abdicating husbands. The authoritarian husband is the man who rules his home with a heavy hand. He's the chauvinist, he's the boss, he has the final say and no one can question that. Or... You have the abdicating husband. That's the person who gave up their role a long time ago and their resolve to let their wife or their kids set the tenor and the temperature of their home. Where you have no word, where you have no anchor, we will fill it with a word or with an anchor and our culture is adrift. Praise God, his word is an anchor in a storm-tossed culture. The grass withers, the flower it's going to fade, the culture it's going to reinvent itself again and again and again, but the word of our God will stand forever. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, a word that has not changed in 2,000 years. Husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. For a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray together. Father, would you speak to us through this unfading, unchanging word and would you restore to our husbands and aspiring husbands and kids and young men that we will raise in this congregation to know and love your word and the truth that's here to become these kind of men and husbands who will lead in our church family. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We know two weeks ago we studied verses 21 to 24, which are instructions to wives. And that begins, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And as we unpacked that uh, paragraph, we demystified the words headship and submission. The husband's role, the wife's role, which has been used and abused many times in our culture and in the church. But we worked off of John Stott's definition, and then we unpacked that from the passage, and he gave us this. A husband's headship is not tyranny, but responsibility. That's what a husband is about. A wife's submission is not unthinking obedience to her husband's rule, but rather a grateful acceptance of his care. I love that definition. So God in his wisdom, he addresses the wife first. He doesn't say, husbands, do this, and then your wife will submit to you. He says, no, wives, you begin with this submission, this grateful acceptance of your husband's care, which then begs the question, what is that care? What is a husband going to do? What is his authority and headship look like in practice? How would you be able to spot a distinctly Christian husband and household? Those are great questions that our passage answers. The preeminent, outstanding, most oft-repeated description of a man's headship of his wife in the home is love. Headship is love. We see that again and again in our passage. Verse 25, husbands love your wives. Verse 28, husbands should love their wives. Again in verse 28, he who loves his wife. Verse 33, let each of you love his wife you will know a Christian head and husband in a home not by his rule, not by his commands, not by his law and order, but by his love. Now I think about some of the homes that we grew up in, some of the churches that we've been a part of, some of the things that we've heard taught about marriage and headship and submission. And surely this passage is going to challenge something about what we've always thought that we've known about a husband and his wife. 
Paul says, headship equals love. Now, I want to talk about this in the two ways that Paul talks about this, and that is to begin with love by saying how Christ loves us, and then turn around and say how a husband then, based on that love, loves his wife. Now, Paul specifically is addressing husbands, but you'll recognize this gospel dance in every believer's life. Every single one of us, if we are born again, We are receiving Christ's love and his forgiveness, and then we're turning around and applying that to another person. So even as we listen in on instructions to husbands, every one of these commands falls on us as a believer, regardless of our age and stage, as we hear God's word. Let's talk, first of all, about how Christ loves us. How does he apply his love to us? I said earlier, where a husband has no frame of reference for his role and for his headship, he's going to royally screw this thing up in two ways. He's going to get off the rails and go in one of two directions, and that is authoritarian or abdication. He can't help himself but to do either of these things. He's either going to grasp at power and control in his household, enforce his rule and dominion in his home, or he's going to give up and he's going to abandon leadership and he's going to become a very, very small man in his home. You can picture those two husbands. You've seen them, you've experienced them, Maybe you've been one of them. Maybe you are one of them. We immediately recognize those two. And those two men strike us as very, very different kinds of people within their homes and within the world. But you know what's so interesting about a heavy-handed authoritarian husband and a henpecked, abdicating husband? Those two share something in common. At the core of both of those men is a very, very fragile and insecure person. Both of those men are fragile. Both of those men are insecure. A heavy-handed authoritarian husband is desperate for control and respect. That's his security. That's his idol. That's what satisfies him. That's where he feels safe. And when he's not getting that in his home or in his workplace, he is hell-bent on getting it where he can. You show me a husband who throws his weight around his house who raises his voice so that he'll be heard, whose wife can't possibly confront or correct him about anything, and I will show you a very, very fragile man. The same is true for the hen-pecked, abdicating husband, but he is desperate for comfort and peace at all costs. Security is his idol. That's the thing that he strives for. And when he is not getting that from God, he will make a world of concessions to find that comfort in his home. You show me a husband who feigns agreement with his wife in order to avoid conflict. 
You show me a husband who is escaping his home through substances or work or hobbies or video games or or he's left the conversation altogether in apathy and I will show you a very, very fragile and insecure man. Because neither of these husbands is getting what he needs from God. The very thing he's designed to know God and receive from God for, he will turn around and try to grasp this thing from anywhere, not least from his wife. He is looking to his wife, just like he's looking to his hobbies and his workplace and then his kids, for his control or for his escape, and he will not find those things there. If I could give an aspiring husband or a new husband or a seasoned husband just a word of advice from Ephesians chapter 5, it would be this. Your wife is not the Christ. Your wife can point you to the Christ. She can pray you to the Christ. She can confront you with the Christ. But your wife is not the Christ. You come home from work disrespected and undermined and overlooked or exhausted and bone weary and you grasp to your wife to satisfy those things and you will quickly find that she cannot possibly bear the weight of a heart that is hungry for God. She can't do it. She's not infinite. She's not internal. She doesn't have the substance of that love. You will only find that security and that satisfaction in the person of the risen Christ. And the sooner we realize that that's to whom we go for that kind of satisfaction, the quicker we will understand that my wife is a treasure that God has given me to point me back to the Christ that she is not. There's a scene in the Gospels that profoundly illustrates this. We know the story, but I don't know if we know the words leading up to the story. And it's in Jesus' life, and it's in the last 24 hours of his life. He gathers the disciples in the upper room, and then he's about to wash their feet, But John 13 says something very, very interesting about what it takes for a man who is Lord and leader to get on his knees and wash another man's feet. It says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, Imagine the security and satisfaction found there. He rose from supper and began to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus knew exactly who he was in God. He knew that he came from God. He knew that his role was from God. He knew that he was going to God. And that meant that in his final moments even though his disciples were still confused about who he was, he didn't need to spend that time grasping for respect or recognition or applause or affection. He was wholly and completely satisfied in God 
and freed to serve another person. Can you imagine the supernatural power of a husband or any believer in this church who is finding first their satisfaction in God? They know where they came from. They know who leads them and loves them, who knows them more intimately than they know themselves and yet still loves them. Can you imagine the freeing power that that has for a person who then doesn't need to grasp that from another person? He doesn't feel the need to be justified or recognized or applauded or had respect shown to him or love. He's free from all of those things and he can begin for the first time in the love of Christ, to get on his knees and wash his wife's feet. Brother, sister, there is a world of liberating power in knowing the love of Christ. To be a husband, we become a bride first. To be the groom for our spouse, we first realize that we are wed to Christ, we are his bride, and he is the one that fills us. As that's beginning to happen in us as husbands and truly to us as believers in the church, we are ready, receiving Christ's love, to turn around and give that love one to another. Husbands, we are ready to give that kind of love that we've received now to our wives and our wives-to-be. I love that Paul basically takes for granted that if a wife is doing her part, she's submitting to her husband out of reverence and joy in the Lord, that a husband, he's taking this role of headship seriously and loving his wife, then we're basically going to figure out the details. Paul doesn't feel the need to like get into the weeds and tell us exactly what we should do in this passage. He doesn't say a word in these verses about who in the household should handle the finances. He just doesn't even go there. He doesn't talk about who should cook and who should clean, or if one cooks, the other should clean. He doesn't say who should do the majority of talking on a double date. He doesn't say if on a major decision we each get 50% of the vote, husband and wife. There's not a single word in here about a date night. He just doesn't talk about details It's almost as if he says, if you get this, if you understand the role that a wife has and a husband has and the Spirit fills you and Christ is redeeming you and shaping you, you're going to figure this out. It's not rocket science. You're going to learn what it means to love each other. But he does give us at least these four major themes, major strokes that he says, whatever you're doing practically on a day-to-day basis, it should reflect these four things. It should look like these major components of Christ's love for us that are found in this passage. This is true of husbands, and truly this is true of every believer. Number one, whatever else this love is, it must be sacrificial. Look at verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, a husband's love is cruciform. A husband's love should feel like taking up a cross and following Jesus and denying himself daily. If our love as a husband doesn't cost us anything, like we get married and we keep every friend 
every hobby, every routine, every spending habit that we had before we got married into our marriage, something is wrong. We are not living this cruciform love. Whatever else our love is, husband, a love is sacrificial. To our dear single friends who are looking for a husband, I pray for you. Let me give you one simple test. There's a bunch of tests for what you're looking for in a man. Let me give you one simple test from this passage that we just read of a man you may be interested in. Does this man now have godly friends and a godly church for whom he has already demonstrated this kind of cruciform love? Is he doing this now? Is he doing it with his friends and is he doing this with his church body? Because if he's not doing this now, I promise he's not going to start doing this on your wedding day. One of the saddest conversations I have with wives long after they are sealed in a marriage covenant with a spiritually lethargic lump is to hear a wife say to me, but he said he wanted to be this kind of man. Like he told me that when he envisioned our marriage, he wanted to be the kind of man who would sacrificially love me. Like he took me to Olive Garden and he looked me in the eyes and said, this is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. Who cares what he said? A man will say anything. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. Find a man whose friends and whose church have seen him die a thousand deaths. Find a man now who bears on his body the stigmata, the cost of carrying a Christian community. That's the kind of man you want. You find a man who's laying down and dying for others now, and you pick up the Olive Garden tab. Like that's the kind of man you want to spend your life with. That's the man you find, okay? That's your litmus test. A husband's love is sacrificial. Number two and three, it's a love that will nourish and cherish. That's what verse 29 says. Just as Christ will nourish and cherish us, we're going to turn around and do the same thing for our wives. Nourish means physical nurture. Cherish means emotional care. So certainly we think about the biggies with respect to marriage. We think about physically caring, caring the basic needs for our spouse. We also think about connecting emotionally with our spouse. Those are the big ways in which we cherish and nourish. But also consider just the mundane, everyday ways in which we're called to do this. I think this is where the gospel rubber meets the road in our marriage. And it's especially for me at the end of a workday. Monday through Friday, I clock out of work and I'm absolutely exhausted. I am bone weary. I'm on my way home. My mind is churning with the things I haven't done and I need to do tomorrow at work. I've got people I've got to respond to. I've got people that I'm disappointing. And I just want to be home and recharge for the next day. And I walk in the door and Ephesians 5 falls on me as a husband. 
how do I meaningfully nourish and cherish my wife on a Monday evening? Surely that means jumping in and helping where most needed until everybody's fed and washed and put in bed. Surely it means engaging with her, caring for her, asking good questions, showing empathy, showing gratitude. Surely these are the bare essentials in a life of Christian headship to nourish and cherish my wife every day that God gives us together. God, give me grace to be that kind of husband in my home to nourish and cherish my wife. We sacrifice, we nourish, we cherish, and then finally, we forgive. Love means forgiveness. Now, Paul has already said this. He's, in fact, said this to the entire church. Chapter 4, verse 32. He's told us that all of us represent Christ's love to each other when we forgive each other because Christ himself, verse 27, takes us, the church, with all of our warts, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of the ways in which we have snubbed God. And it says that he presents us as the church without spot or wrinkle to a watching world. Isn't that glorious? Christ forgives and forgets our world of sin and presents us without blemish to a watching world. Spouses, husbands, we now turn around and do that for each other. I've got a world of dirt on my wife. She's got a world of dirt on me. You spend enough time together in close quarters and you're going to see some things. You're going to see scenes that you wish you unsaw. You're going to hear words that are condemning or cutting. You're going to see shameful sins. You're going to see explosive tempers. You are going to have a world of accusations to bring against your spouse that you could bring up at any given time and shame this person into submission. You would make a fantastic accuser for the person that you're married to. But we don't need another accuser. We already have one. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's real and he's present. And we're going to meet him in the very next chapter. You know what would be surprising to a spouse? Is to treat her as Christ does. And that is when she sins against us. To absorb the cost and the pain of that sin. And to forgive her. And to present her to a watching world and say to the world and to the church, as far as I'm concerned, I have nothing that I hold against this person. She is spotless and without blemish, forgiven in my eyes. That would be the love of Christ to us, enacted for each other to the glory of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, how sweet and 
beautiful and unbelievable is this love that you first give us. That you sacrifice, nourish, and cherish. That you love us and forgive us. Lord, I pray that as believers and especially as husbands, that that would be the theme of our headship. That we would be a home that our kids look to, that our wives look to, and they see this kind of love that they have first tasted in Christ and are reminded of through husbands and fathers. Would you do that in our church body, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.